With that, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. It's also in the digital order of worship that you downloaded earlier. Now, today is the fourth Sunday after Epiphany, and we've been saying all along, Epiphany is the Greek word for revealing, and it is the moment on the church calendar where we focus on the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. And specifically, we focus on how the person and work of Christ is revealed, uh, and he's revealed as the true prophet, true priest, and true king of God's people. And this season reminds me of the storyline of the four Gospels. Each of the four Gospels has a unique introduction, uh, and then they're followed by, uh, that's followed by a revealing of who Jesus is. Each of the Gospels goes about revealing both the humanity and the deity of Jesus in different ways. They all end up with the entry into Jerusalem and the road to the cross, uh, but the stylistic revealing of Jesus is unique in each one. And so far, we've seen Jesus revealed as the servant of the Lord promised in the Old Testament. We've looked at the implications of that revealing for a Christian's identity in 1 Corinthians, right, the last two weeks. And now, this week and next, we're going to look at Jesus himself in the Gospel of Mark. And here, what we really are going to focus in on and see is Jesus' authority revealed. We're going to see how it works. We're going to see what it is and where it goes. We're going to see Jesus revealed as one who has authority. So here now, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, which is God's word, a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you do? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching, with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow us thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Amen. Yeah, I heard that story. You tell that guy, if he wants to try any rough stuff, just remember, I ain't no band leader. Now look, I can't recommend that you watch it, but The Godfather remains one of my favorite movies. And in the scene that I just quoted, a, a movie director is talking to a mob boss. And the mob boss is trying to get a, a movie role for a friend of the family, uh, but the movie director won't budge. He won't give him the role. And this, of course, leads uh, to the infamous uh, horse's head scene in the movie. Maybe, you've, maybe you know about it from uh, movie trivia, even if, you haven't, even if you haven't seen it. The movie director says, hey, I heard that story. I ain't no band leader. He wants the mob boss to know that he's heard the story of the mob's violence. 
and he knows how it goes, how they, how they rough people up, but this movie director thinks he can handle things himself. He's not afraid. And then in the famous scene I'm talking about, the movie director wakes up uh, one quiet, sunny California morning to find a severed horse's head in his bed. And he has no idea how it got there. Um, And of course, that scares him to death, and he changes his mind, and he gives the mob boss what he wants. And now, if you've grown up in the church, uh, or if you're familiar with Christianity, there's a danger of coming to the gospel stories. The danger is that you'll be like that movie director. You'll say, ah, I heard that story. We think we know how it goes. We think we know everything that it already means. And because of that, we make the mistake of thinking that we're in control of the situation. The gospel becomes old news. Ah, I heard that story. Something like that happened in this passage in Mark. The scribes, the the people, the unclean spirits, they all knew something of the promised Messiah. They knew the story that God would come into the world to set things right. He would send his Messiah to reign. The scribes were trained to interpret the law and the prophets of the Hebrew Bible each week on the Sabbath, uh, and then the people came to hear them or to hear someone expound on that teaching. They, they They all heard that story. But when Jesus shows up here in this scene, it's going to be like that movie director who found the horse's head in his bed. There's going to be this, ah, ah, what is this? They'll be amazed. They'll be blown away. And we'll learn with them that we must come to Jesus for cleansing because he has the authority of God's Messiah. And we'll see that here uh, when we look in this passage and we see uh, the setting, the showdown, and the shout out. The setting, the showdown, and the shout out. Okay, let's go. First, the setting in verses 21 and 22. Now, the first two verses of this gospel story are simple enough. They give us the setting, like any good story, uh, and they leave us with what will be an obvious question. Jesus and his disciples are traveling into the village of Capernaum. Mark doesn't give the details that this village is next to the Via Maris, which is the main trade route between the Mediterranean plain and Damascus in the north. He doesn't give us the details that it's outside of the political cities in the, in the region of Galilee, uh, but that there is a Roman garrison there. He doesn't even tell us that it's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and that it's full of fishermen, farmers, artisans, merchants, officials, and even tax collectors, uh, folks just trying to make a living, Jewish families and Roman soldiers. But that's what Capernaum is. Now, the synagogue was the local gathering place for the people of God. And uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, even suggests that there was some kind of peace between Jews and Romans because a Roman centurion built a synagogue here. I mean, economically, there's a good thing going on here. There's a major trade route. There's good fishing. There's fertile soil. There's a measure of peace between these two warring cultures. Now, the synagogue was not a center for sacrifice. Sacrifice, that kind of worship, was reserved for the temple in Jerusalem. The synagogue was a center for gathering and for learning. And it's not unlike maybe most Protestant churches in America. I mean, what's the big thing that takes place in each of our gatherings? Learning, a sermon, right? If you're going to spend an extra hour in a Protestant church, what else are you going to do? You'll probably go to Sunday school, right? More learning. 
Like the scribes, preachers like me are trained to give authoritative interpretations of the scripture. Now, the synagogue was a worship service centered around learning. In some ways, it was like a group Bible study with rotating leaders because the scribes themselves didn't necessarily do the teaching, but different people in the congregation would expound on that day's given worship text. But the scribes are always there in the background. They're teaching and they're interpreting. So in this place, it's not odd that Jesus is coming to town, that he and his friends, you know, hit the local synagogue on the Sabbath, and that as a, as a visiting teacher, he would uh, come in and stand up and talk. I mean, think about having a, a guest preacher at church or a, or a missionary in from a, from a, for a visit uh, who preaches at a church service or talks in a Sunday school. It's not a huge surprise. It's a fairly common practice. And you wonder, too, how big the synagogue is and how many different people here take turns teaching. I mean, maybe it's just that the, the regular guy wants a Saturday off. Uh, maybe there aren't that many teachers in the volunteer rotation. Or maybe the scribes won't let more people take a turn because, uh, because those people don't meet their standard. And maybe then, as now, fear of public speaking is one of the top three fears uh, of all people, uh, just behind death by fire and uh, death by drowning. So Jesus is doing something normal, but he creates an abnormal response. And that's going to leave us with a question. In verse 22, it says that they were being amazed at his teaching. The connotation of this word in the original even suggests like a, a physical reaction. They received Jesus' teaching like a, like a punch or uh, like a bucket of cold water in the face or being shaken awake in the middle of the night because your house is on fire or like they found a horse's head in their bed. Ah! <laughs> Why do they have this kind of reaction? It tells us there in verse 22. Because Jesus taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Mark, can you give me a little more? I mean... I just got through telling everyone that the scribes were trained and that they were authoritative interpreters. They are the guys who are there week in and week out. They're responsible for the teaching of the people. And this is a tradition that goes probably all the way back to the book of Ezra. Did the scribes not have authority? What was different about the authority with which Jesus taught and the authority of the scribes? That's an important question to answer because it's not that the scribes didn't have any authority. They had a scriptural mandate, a cultural tradition, and they were doing the job that they were trained to do. What's the difference between their authority and Jesus' authority? The short answer is that his authority is heavenly and their authority is earthly. And what's the difference between those two types of authority? Now, Mark is a writer who shows rather than tells, so his answer to this question is actually going to happen over the course of this whole gospel, and I encourage you, take the time to read Mark, maybe again, maybe for the first time, and keep this question in the back of your mind as you read. What's the difference between Jesus' heavenly authority and the scribes' earthly authority? But here's my quick summary of it. The scribes, they heard that story before, but they didn't know the power. The scribes had a proper theology of prayer, but they rarely prayed. The scribes know chapter and verse about the purity of God, but they would never demean themselves to come in contact with the people they saw as dirty. 
and to invite them to be cleansed by the power of God. The scribes knew the history of their people and the history of ideas, but they could not connect those lessons from history to the present time. I think other parts of the New Testament help describe them, and maybe sometimes it describes us as well. Always learning, but never able to arrive at the truth. They're corrupted in mind and disqualified in the faith. That's 2 Timothy 3, verses 7 and 8. Or in another place, Jude, verses 12 and 13, they are hidden reefs at the gathering of God's people. You'll run your boat up on them. They are shepherds who feed themselves. They are waterless clouds boasting of gifts that they don't give. Their lives show no fruit, and their tree is uprooted as a result, making them twice dead. Right? In this setting, earthly authority bears no fruit, but heavenly authority does. So we see that heavenly authority of Jesus and see how it bears fruit when we look at the showdown in verses 23 through 26. As quickly as we're asking the question about authority, Mark gives us a showdown between two powers in the synagogue. Uh, Look in verse 23. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. What does it mean that this spirit is unclean? The word here is connected to something being not washed or even being unwashable. In other words, a stain. Now, I have a shirt that I cannot bear to throw away. I I really like it, um, but it has an ink stain on the pocket. Uh, And the ink stain is, it's it's not a small one. It's noticeable even from from five feet away. Uh, So I I really only wear the shirt with with a sweater over it. I try and cover it up, but the shirt is unclean and that that ink stain is never coming out. And I've tried every home remedy there is uh, and everyone that I could find on the internet, uh, but this shirt will never be purely clean again. And so it is with the unclean spirit. It's a stain. It's a stain of evil and it has somehow captured this man and he has come into the gathering of God's people. Now I hear what you might be asking. Do I really believe that unclean spirits can possess people? Yes. Uh, I don't believe that this scene mentioned in the scripture here, I don't believe that it is describing mental illness because ancient people uh, made a difference between madness and possession. And for that same reason, I don't believe that this is some kind of sickness or disease. Even ancient people could tell the difference between uh, sickness, disease, and demon possession. And I've heard stories, but I do not have any direct experience myself with spiritual possession. Uh, if anything, I think that sometimes we might uh, mislabel disease for, uh, for the demonic, but, but I think we really have to be careful. Uh, there are a lot of hucksters out there in the world. Can someone leave themselves open to spiritual possession? Yes. How exactly does that work? I don't know. But when you see Jesus here... It seems that staying close to him is the thing that keeps you safe. So that's what this showdown teaches us. Here is a demonstration of Jesus' authority. In verse 24, it's the unclean spirit who speaks first. Literally, what is it to us and to you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? This demonic assertion uh, is that they have control. The demon has control. This unclean spirit is saying, in essence, hey, I heard that story, and I ain't no band leader. 
There's even an insinuation that if Jesus tries to destroy the spirit, that it will also destroy the man. Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to destroy me and this host body that I'm in? Now, we know in Mark 5 and elsewhere that a number of demons can possess a single person, but this spirit seems to speak as one being. I know who you are. The spirit names Jesus as a way of taking authority, taking control of the situation. He names Jesus. He names the place that he comes from, and he names Jesus' title, the Holy One of God. And the unclean spirit actually is correct in everything that he says. He gets, he gets the name, he gets his background, and he gets his title all correct. Your name is Jesus. You came from Nazareth. I've heard the story of a Messiah coming to destroy demons. That's who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Naming someone is a way we try to gain power over them. And I've read commentators who say that this naming to gain authority is something meaningful in the ancient world, but I find that it's something that we do in the modern world too. Think of the subtext underneath things that we joke about, right? Uh, a friend of mine who works locally at the National Ground Intelligence Center uh, sometimes jokes like this. He says, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And we laugh at that. And sometimes we call, we, we'll call people uh, Mr. So-and-so and name where they're from and, and their title, right? Uh, well, who blessed you, Mr. Ivy League graduate? Uh, or what do you think you know, Mr. Midwestern farmer's son? Right? We name people. We name people by their place and their title, but there's a subtext underneath it. And it's a subtext that says, because I know who you are, I have power over you. I ain't no band leader. I control this situation by naming you. But in this showdown, it's the unclean spirit who has no idea the power that he's contending with. In verse 25, Jesus reveals his heavenly authority. He gives two commands, be muzzled, come out of him. Many times in scripture, when an authority figure addresses a crowd, we hear about their body posture. In Acts, Paul or Peter motion with their hand. But here, Mark is silent about all that. Jesus doesn't need to wave his arms or wave a magic wand. The power of his words are enough. Silence, come out of him. Of course, the demon isn't quite silent. He shakes the man violently and he comes out crying with a loud voice. But Jesus isn't commanding him really to be inaudible. What Jesus is silencing is the, the unclean spirit's misuse of Jesus' name and title. The unclean spirit, in other words, is, is using Jesus' name in vain. He's trying to usurp heavenly authority by his subtext, but he has no power to do so. So the man shakes and the spirit leaves. Now let me just give you two questions to ask yourself about this showdown. I know you're not an unclean spirit, but sometimes all of us may act like one. So first, do you ever accuse Jesus that he's come to destroy you? Have you come to destroy us? Jesus, have you come to destroy me because I know my sins are that bad that I deserve it? Oh, Jesus, I know what you're here to do. You're here to finally take me out. Or Jesus, Jesus, have you come to destroy the perfect little life that I've fashioned for myself apart from you? Oh, Jesus, I know what you're here to do. 
Secondly, let me ask you this question. Do you ever try to get control of Jesus by your subtext? In essence, do you ever say, "Ah, I've heard that story before. I know how it goes. I know Jesus teaches us to pray every day, but, but come on, after all, sure, he can do it. He's Jesus. He's God. I can't do that, right? The subtext of that is, you shouldn't ex- Jesus, you shouldn't expect me to be able to do things like that, right? We try and put Jesus at arm's length with the things that we say or the things that we think he might be coming to do. What might be possible for us if we quit accusing and quit trying to control Jesus and instead come to him for cleansing? It might look like the end of this story. It might look like the shout out of verses 27 and 28. And yes, I said shout out because I was looking for a third S word in my outline. Uh, But it is true that Jesus gets two shout outs here. Uh, One comes from the crowd and the other shout out is his fame. So first the crowd in verse 27, uh, the crowd is amazed. It's another wonder word. The crowd is in awe of, of what just happened. I mean, wouldn't you be in awe too if a showdown like this took place at your church? I mean, I know a few stories of churches where random visitors stood up to, to you know, yell at a pastor in the middle of the sermon. And, and uh, you know, it was scary, not so much because of, of the incident or the person, but it was just scary because it broke the normal pattern of how things go. But here, the astonishment of the crowd results in conversation that centers around authority. What is this? It's a new teaching and with authority. There's a connection uh, between teaching and exorcism. There's a connection between rebuke and command and obeying. In verse 25, it says, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. That stopped him. In the same verse, he commands the unclean spirit, and in verse 26, the spirit moves out. And here in verse 27, the people recognize that the unclean spirits must obey Jesus. They hear and do. We might call that hearkening, which is a word that means to both hear and do together. Jesus stops the unclean spirit, he moves the unclean spirit, and all unclean spirits must hearken to him. Strangely enough, the same thing happens to the crowd at the synagogue. Jesus, by his teaching, stops them, stops them in their tracks, breaks the pattern that they're used to. He moves them by what he says and by what he does. And the crowd begins to hearken to him. And that's the second shout out. The second shout out is what it says in verse 28, that his fame spreads throughout the surrounding region. Um, and literally, uh, the, the word means uh, that which was heard of him spread throughout the, around, the surrounding region. So the story, the story of, of his teaching and what he did, uh, and that story went out. Now, how did it go out in every direction in Galilee? Well, the people who were there had to go out and tell the story to others. So let me ask you this question. Do the things of God astonish you? How would you know? Uh, Well, I think if the things of God really astonished you to the level of amazement of the crowd here in the synagogue, it would look like doxology, clarity, doxology. What do I mean by that? 
Uh, doxology, clarity, doxology is this. It's studying God's word until you have a doxological moment yourself. And what does that mean? It just means that as you study the word, the glory of it strikes you. It doesn't just become one more story that you've heard over and over again, but something in there captures your heart and mind in a new way, like Jesus capturing. It stops you in your tracks. And then you come to a place of clarity. And most of the time when you come to a place of clarity, it's because you've tried to say it out loud. A lot of times, one of the reasons that I love to preach is uh, because in, in trying to teach others or give the word away to others, it becomes more clear in my own heart and mind. And that can happen for any of us when we're having a conversation. You have a doxological moment, and then you have a moment of clarity where you try and converse like the crowd in verse 27 and 28 were doing. They converse with each other, and they say, a new teaching, and what is this? With authority, you come to a moment of clarity. And then after you clarify those ideas that you're thinking about when you find them in God's word, it moves you to another place of doxology, another place of of God's glory being revealed. And it's the thing that strikes you and moves you to worship. You have personal doxology. You have clarity in conversation with others. And it moves you together to doxology in worship. That's what happened when Jesus showed up and he stops them. He moves them. And they hearken to him. Doxology, clarity, doxology. Do the things of God astonish you? Do you study for doxology? Do you converse for clarity? And then worship in doxology. That's a good pattern to find. Let me ask you one other thing. What shakes you more? Because just as the man was shaken when the demon had to move out, the crowd was shaken by what Jesus said and what he did. What shakes you more, the cleansing of Jesus or the evil that's harassing you? All of us get dogged by different things. I, I, and I, I, again, I don't want to mix up demon possession uh, with, with just the regular uh, ups and downs of life. But the evil that harasses us, uh, we need to be cleansed from it. When you see Jesus and his authority in this passage, are you ready to come to him for cleansing? Will you let him stop you? Will you let him move you? Will you hearken to him? Like that movie director in my opening illustration, uh, he didn't know the power. And this crowd didn't know the power either. And when they come upon Jesus, they're astonished. Now that was their that was their reaction. How about you? Are you astonished by Jesus? Here's the most astonishing thing. He did not come to destroy. He did not come to destroy you. He did not come to destroy the man. He did not come to destroy the synagogue, but he came to cleanse. It was only the unclean spirits who had to be afraid. But the parts of creation that God had made that were good, Jesus came to cleanse. And the ultimate cleansing came by his blood. The demon said, have you come to destroy us? And sometimes we think that. Has Jesus come to destroy us? No. Jesus came to be destroyed in his death on the cross that we might be cleansed and we might know God more fully. That's the beauty of the gospel story. And as many times as you hear it, or as many times as you can let it astonish you and let it cleanse you 
and let it move you to worship again and again. The setting of this story makes us ask the question of authority. What's the difference between heavenly and earthly authority? Will we look for heavenly authority to bear earthly fruit in our lives? The showdown of this story reveals the authority of Jesus. His words have power. They destroy earthly authority and subtext. But we're sometimes afraid Jesus will destroy us. Sometimes we're even trying to get control over him. But the truth, again, is that he came not to destroy us, but to cleanse us. Jesus came to be destroyed so that we could know him. His blood was poured out on the cross so that we could know him and his authority in his resurrection. And that moves us to shout out with the crowds, who is this? Who not only teaches with authority, but he loves you with his authority. He uses his authority for your good so that you can know him. And that's the good news of the gospel that made its way from Capernaum even all the way today to this live stream, to your living room. They were shaken and his message went out from them in every direction. Let that be you too. Be shaken by the authority of Jesus. Let him cleanse you of your subtext. Let him cleanse you so that you can be known with those who spread Jesus' fame in every direction. Let's pray. Almighty God, you who gave us Jesus, whose power stops us, moves us, and moves us to hearken to him. Oh, so work in our lives today that we might hearken, that we might hear and obey your word, that we might spread the fame of Jesus throughout the world and give you glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen.